trigger warning for the Highlands is you might need your big jumper. It's pretty much the same over here. I was looking forward to a winter wonderland of sorts. All I can see is Alex looking very German. Which one? <laughs> to warn you and Judy right to begin with that um, usually Alexander Drexel does the intros because I have a reputation of, what's the word, not managing to get much further than a sentence without messing up. Deal with it. Suck it up. I'm pretty happy. I saved your life. I can go to lunch later. (laughs) I'm now going to be professional. I've got my tea. I'm good. Do it. I'm psyched. Hello and welcome to the 20th episode of Troublesome Terps, the podcast that discusses the topics that keep interpreters up at night and that probably counts as CPD if you squint hard enough. Today we have an extra special show. For the first time ever in the history of Troublesome Terps, we have not one, but two guests with us. Woo! <laughs> That was a bit of a delayed woo. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But before we even get there, I'm really pleased to introduce you once again to the winningest interpreting podcaster in history, Alexander Drexel. Yes. Hello. Good evening, everyone. I'm coming to you loud and clear from beautiful but very, very cold Aachen tonight. The other Alex and I, we're at least we're in the same country, which is a good start. Yay! Yay! We're almost in the same room. <laughs> I always thought Aachen was what a German said when they sneezed. I'm Jonathan Downey, the resident person who tries to be funny. And completing our co-hosting team, we have the master of the short, smart quip, our very own Bavarian sensation, Alexander Gansmeyer. So am I supposed to say something short, smart and quippy now? I I don't have anything like that. Uh... I do apologize. It's too cold. It's too cold. I'm sorry, guys. I need to warm up first. Welcome to the most professional part of Troublesome Terps. (laughs) The introduction. (laughs) As I mentioned earlier, we have two guests on the show today. First, we have the co-author of the classic book in translation and interpreter marketing, The Entrepreneurial Linguist. She's a sought-after speaker, experienced interpreter and translator, and as I can testify from meeting her in Budapest, an all-round lovely person, Judy Jenner. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. This is an amazing podcast to have going here, and I'm happy to be part of it. It's great to have you here. It's amazing the people we get to come on this show. It makes us feel professional. It's amazing that people actually (laughs) listen to the podcast, I find. (laughs) Well, they should. (laughs) <laughs> okay, that's being cut and post. Can I just say that now? <laughs> and it is my personal pleasure to welcome one of the most insightful business coaches that I have ever met onto the show. Now, one of the things about Troublesome Terps is that we're trying to widen our scope. Interpreters traditionally have kept themselves and listened to their own people. But personally, I've been impressed by this guy. It takes a certain kind of person to help consultants and solopreneurs double their rates and who wouldn't like to double their rates. He is the Director of Business Planning, Implementation and Acceleration for Mount Parnassus Limited and the pricing strategist for his own company, Castle Strategy. And as if enough, he's also a fellow Heriot Watt University graduate. Please welcome Ewan Mingus. Jonathan, you're far too kind. and I don't know where you got all that good stuff from. You must have confused me with someone else. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I can confuse a lot of people with a lot of things. 
<laughs> no, it, it, one of the skills of a good interpreter is to be able to do research. And uh, one of our sayings is that we can a fake, be a fake expert on anything if you give us a week. So this is our very special business development show. I think a lot of interpreters are realizing that we have to have a change of mindset from passively waiting for work to come to going out and finding it. And so this is why we have both Ewan and Judy. Judy with her expertise on the industry and where it might be going and what kind of marketing would be uh, helpful. And Ewan with his experience outside the translation and interpreting industry with consultants, solopreneurs and one-person businesses. And we thought it'd be a good idea to bring both perspectives together so that we hear both sides of the coin. So where shall we start? Ewan, can you jump in and give us in a couple of sentences, what's the difference between business business development and marketing? Yeah, sure, Jonathan. I, I don't know what the official difference is between them, but I certainly have my own uh, interpretation of that. So for me, business development is about three things, keeping it really simple. It's about deciding who your dream clients are, what your business model is. And, but when I say business model, I mean, you know, what are you trying to do as a a solopreneur? Are you trying to get five clients on £500 a month? Are you trying to get 10 clients on £300 a month? Something really simple. And the third thing is retainers. If you can get clients onto retainers, that's the holy grail, people paying you every single month. And for me, those are the three simple things that encapsulate business development. So that really moves us because the traditional uh, model for certainly confidence interpreting is that it's a per job model. So I don't know about anyone else's experience, but my experience often is you might do a job for a client and the next time you hear from them is 12 months time, maybe 24 months time when they happen to come back around to your city. Um, it's interesting to see that I've actually seen more and more interpreters now look to grow different aspects of their business to try and move clients away from a just a pair job to offering other services as well. Judy, have you seen that in the US that interpreters are trying to find ways that they're not just being paid for this job by this client, but they're trying to offer other services basically to to keep them in the the funnel, if you like, for longer? Right. Good question. I think rather than offering additional services in addition to interpreting, I think what should happen and what some of us do is really nurture the relationship. I think all business is about relationship building and one level or another, whatever you call it, marketing or business development or sales, it's all about having a relationship with a client and they're more likely to come back to you if they feel like you're you're really trying to have a working relationship with them except as opposed to just do a project every few months. So what I always recommend is something very simple. Keep in touch, you know, send a Christmas gift, send a, you know, somebody's having a new baby. Why don't you send some flowers, check in once in a while, say, hey, dear company X, I've, I've seen you in the news. Great uh, job on earnings for this quarter or whatever. Just like you do in your normal human relationships on a personal level. I do that also on the business level and I, and it doesn't cost you anything other than your time. And it's a powerful tool because if I were the client, I'll come back to the person who, with whom I've had contact throughout the year. Sometimes it just comes down to them remembering you because there's so many great interpreters and, and not there's some who are better than others, of course. But I think the people who get remembered are the linguists who really work on the relationships with their clients. And so is that what you're talking about, Yoon, when you're talking about retainers is, is almost creating a, a longer term financial relationship that the client's not paying you to do project X, 
they're paying you to do Project X and follow up on other things to do with that project so that you're kind of hearing from them and, and if you like, receiving small amounts of funds from them on an ongoing basis. It's a great point that Judy makes. It is about a relationship. Um, and it's uh, and I'm going to come back to this point later and some other questions I think we're going to tackle, but it is about that relationship. The retainer model, it's about having income that comes in every month. And that can happen in different ways. It could be someone's paying you a thousand pounds a month for services, or it could be that you've got a strategic partner who sends you three or four jobs every month. So it's different things. And it's about being creative so that you can build that. And to give you one example, a training company I worked with about five or six years ago, like yourselves, they were going in, they were doing two pieces of work over the year, maybe one in May, one in September, and they were charging about £10,000. And I just said to them, why don't you take the relationship to a new level? Instead of charging them 5000 and 5000 let's just charge them 1000 a month throughout the year and with that relationship that Judy speaks about occasionally there's other things that crop up and you can just increase that monthly retainer but it's being creative seeing opportunities that are going to bring you regular income. So um, Alex Kansmeyer, I know the German market is notorious for having quite a lot of work going is it how are interpreters dealing with their clients here and trying to grow their business there? Are they just saying, okay, we'll, we'll take the work that comes or are interpreters looking to try and build these kind of long-term relationships with clients? That's a very good question, actually. I'm not sure how other folks do it, but I try to build these relationships because I do believe what Judy said that, you know, people are going to remember the people that they had contact with, the people that sent them an email, gave them a call, and also the people that they liked. And I think if you just ignore someone for... 365 days and then you just call them and are like hey where's my job from last year why aren't we doing this year i'm not sure that um, rubs people the right way so that's kind of what i try to do but equally in the whole business development thing i remember when i was starting out i was thinking you know there were all these these different courses and seminars that i did on business development and and creating your own business plan you know especially when you're starting out so you have these these targets that you can hit and you can see how you're evolving and i think particularly in our profession it's very difficult and it was very frustrating in, initially because it's hard to set these fixed milestones these benchmarks for yourself because in a way we are dependent on external factors that are outside of our control so over time i've kind of learned to um how how should i say maybe deconstruct the business plan in a way that is more achievable to me so instead of saying i'm gonna get five new clients every day this week I kind of flipped that and said, I'm going to contact five potential new clients every day of this week because that was in my control. Mm -hmm. So I could, I could do that. And at the end of the day, I felt good knowing that I had done what was in my power, what I could do to further my business. Now, how many of those actually turn out clients? I don't know. It's probably not that many, but you know, as it goes, that's just, that's just how I try to, to grow my business. And I'm happy with, with how it turned out in the long run. So I think that was that is something very important that I just want to, yeah, you know, mention. <laughs> I, I, I know Ewan has a lot to say in, in business plans, and I know if I let Ewan go on business plans, we could be here for a while. Um, one of the things that that I've noticed myself is that certainly where I am, the part of the UK market that I'm in, is traditionally quite agency controlled, and there's nothing 
particularly wrong with that while the market is strong and while there's a lot of work and while all of the agencies are winning and there's not a, a huge amount of fierce competition once it becomes super competitive once you end up with um, a lot of supply and not so much demand then it becomes a more difficult model um, and so since I graduated with my PhD about a year and a half ago I've been I, I became consultant very quickly and I realized that actually for me the things that are within my control are how many possible decision makers can I reach and even though I'm still rejigging a strategy to go well I can't necessarily always be in the same room as them because you know uh, as we record this podcast, my part of uh, Scotland is on a red weather alert and they've told everyone to stay at home. So I'm very glad I didn't book tickets to go to the trade show that I was planning to go to tomorrow in London. But by the same token, there are concrete steps that you can be taking. You can be um, trying to do connection requests on LinkedIn. You can be uh, creating an email course that you can send to clients. Um, you and without going into the de detail of, of your views on business plans, um, do you, when you're advising solopreneurs, do you tend to concentrate on the things that they can control or what is it that you set for them instead of the, I know you're not a fan of traditional numerical targets. Could you talk through what you set, what you ask um, solopreneurs to set up instead of them? Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, I'll try and be as brief as I can, Jonathan. What we do is the, we create pictures of the future. We call them recognition events. And the trouble with numerical targets is they create unintended consequences. Um, you've only got to look at the pizza company that said they would deliver in 30 minutes so your money back, um, which resulted in some fairly uh, hair-raising motorbikes around town, <laughs> um, it, it, along with the, the bus company that told their drivers to get from a to B in a certain time, and they, they proceeded to miss out all the stops in the middle just to get to the end. Um, I, I joke about these two examples, but again and again, it is so difficult to come up with the correct behaviors when you're aiming for a numerical target. Whereas instead, if you've got a picture of where you're aiming, what your business will look like in the future, what it is that you are doing, it's a much better way to focus yourself going forward. And once we get that picture, the example I shared with you before was of a, a company who couldn't get the right employees in their business. And we created a recognition event where the managing director would walk into his desk on a Monday morning and people would be applying on spec. And what we did from that recognition event, we worked backwards to present day. And as we worked backwards, he said things like, people would have got so excited, they felt they had to apply to my company to work. And before that, people in the company or people we're linked to were speaking so highly of our business. And before that, and before that, I went back and back, and we started making changes. And lo and behold, letters landed on his desk. And this is a second generation business who had never been able to get good employees. But that's just one example of what we do on recognition events. And, and that's a good example because it shows us that um, the, the typical chase for sales, targets, cash. Um, I've seen so many companies where they've started out and worked for a few companies where they've started out really well with 
the right ideas. But as soon as the numerical targets become king, they tend to miss out all the stuff that makes those numerical targets worthwhile. I know one company that I worked for when I was in an outbound sales call center, which is horrible to remember, but they started out quite well. But as soon as they started putting, these are the exact targets we want you to meet every day, well, people started changing their behavior every day and realizing when the sales were coming, then to try and prevent that, they said, we need this number of sales every hour. And anyone who's ever been in sales will tell you that's not how sales work. You can go an hour or a week with none, and then you can go three days and get 10. Um, And there was a focus on the wrong kind of behavior. They were pushing people to make decisions that they shouldn't have been making. And I think that's one of the things that I've noticed with the rise of, of social media, and this is going to take us to our next question for Judy, but in the rise of social media, I've seen far too many young interpreters push for links, hits, shares, comments, and not really think about, well, okay, I can write an article that gets shared 10,000 times by my fellow interpreters, but the monetary value of that is what? Um, I joked in Budapest that no one ever goes up to their bank and says, you know, my last Facebook post got uh, got 10,000 comments. Can I get a mortgage, please? You know, no mm-hmm. bank would entertain that. Right. Um, but Judy, kind of moving from that point, the, the entrepreneurial linguist for me is still the industry classic. Um, it, what has kind of shifted since, is there anything that's shifted since uh, you and, and Dagmar wrote the book? And if you were to write a new edition, are there sections that you would take out or new sections that you would put in? I'm so glad you liked the book. You know, it was a, a labor of love because, you know, our colleagues kept on telling us they liked our blog posts and we should maybe think about writing a book. And we, I did it <laughs> kicking and screaming, I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm not nearly as good at writing books as you are, Jonathan, but we, <laughs> we did it and it was lovely. And um, I think it's made in hindsight. (laughs) In hindsight, in the middle, it felt like ten minutes underwater. (laughs) Yeah, I know that feeling. (laughs) So it's hard to finish it, but I do think it's made really good contributions to the industry, and that's what we wanted. We didn't dedicate the book to our parents. Um, We actually dedicated it to all our colleagues around the world, right? Because we wrote it for for everybody. So it really was something we felt strongly about doing. And um, Uh, it's been great to see how well it's been received. And and, and has anything really changed that if you were to write, you know, Entrepreneurial Linguist version two, is there anything that you would take out or anything that you would put in especially what you put in now yeah for sure and actually we've been uh, getting some friendly email mm-hmm. reminders about the second edition in the, um, mm-hmm. from some lovely colleagues who'd like mm-hmm. to see more which is, is very flattering indeed but you know i'm going to tell you i just don't know if I want to do it again, but uh, <laughs> as much as I've enjoyed it, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a big project. It seems so unsurmountable. It seems like such a Herculean task, but clearly it's possible. But to answer your question, what I there is a lot that has changed, especially on social media. Basically, the entire chapter we wrote on social media would completely need to be redone. This book came out in 2010, which is in the early days of Twitter, and. I remember in the book, we actually picked Facebook as our favorite social media, even for business, which doesn't make as much sense now as it did mm-hmm. years ago, because things change, and that's just the nature of how the business world works. So that will definitely need some revision for sure. And we'd also want the chapter on interpreting, because it was originally written for translators. Of course, pretty much everything that's presented can be implied applied in interpreting as well, but we'd probably have a special chapter for interpreting 
topics that are specific to interpreters and maybe add an international chapter on taxation for different countries, which is also very intimidating. <laughs> mm, oh boy. Very true. One of the things that struck me when reading the book, and it's one of the things that I think is missing in a lot of the marketing and business development talk that I've seen all over the internet, is the very humanity of it. Uh, I mean, I know you said it was written back in the early days of Twitter, um, but there's almost been this law of people actually caring about the human being at the end of the email or at the end of the tweet. Mm. And I, I now have a policy that anyone who automated direct messages me on Twitter or sends me an automated message on LinkedIn, I automatically disconnect. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. So I want unfollow or disconnect. Yeah. Um, and it's that trying to break down the automization of it all. Um, thankfully, in your book, it's so human and it, there's so much about, you know, actually meeting people and who you are. And, and I think, especially for translators who, you know, we joke that, you know, you've met an extroverted translator when they stayed at your shoes while you're speaking. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I love that one. It's so true. <laughs> translators tend to live occasionally solitary existences. Their work lives are pretty solitary, you know? And so I thought we have this background, my twin sister and I, and especially me with uh, having gone to business school, I mm. thought, well, I have some strategies that appear to be working and what I want more than anything is not necessarily for us to be successful but I want everybody yeah. to be successful I want to be part of an industry that is full of you know positive energy where people can make a good living off it and that's unfortunately not always mm. the case so we thought this is our contribution to that's maybe this is our legacy to the industry that we share what we know so hopefully people can apply it and um, maybe not do exactly what we did but um, have some ideas about how to basically get their services sold because that's yeah. what it comes down to you can be the world's greatest interpreter or translator but if you don't really know how to find the clients that's not really a very valuable skill unless you it's very valuable but it's only valuable in conjunction with clients yeah. Yeah. and the big question is <laughs> how do you get those clients right and so that's what we tried to answer in the, in the book and um I'm glad you you like the humanity in it because I think it was written as a labor of love to our industry and I'm I'm glad it shows. <laughs> I, I was going to say, um, Alex Gansmar, is it just an English speaking thing or is it this same kind of automation, you know, send out a thousand DM, you know, automated DM, whoever follows you and the kind of, it's becoming quite like machinery here in the UK. I don't know if the same is happening in Germany and whether you're, because I know you work with Falcade and with Aik, is there any efforts there to kind of try to slow that process down and say, you know, we're still human beings after all? I, I, I've seen it both from interpreters and from uh, people who I would ordinarily like to work with as clients. That you know, you follow them yeah. and you instantly get a DM, or uh, you've you've got like three thousand messages, and obviously, a, a, an email that hits your inbox obviously hasn't been um, customized in any single way. <laughs> Yeah. So I think there's two interesting approaches that I've seen that I've seen more, but two of them are, I find very interesting. One of them is to, to present yourself as the absolute expert. So it's really interpreters going into um, business schools and giving presentations to the future leaders, to the future managers on how they can help them grow their business potentially in the future and try to get the clients through that way and try to present themselves as that beacon of, of knowledge that can help them out. And I think that's a really interesting approach. The other one I find interesting, but 
sort of troubling. The other one is really the, that's exactly what you were talking about, that, that automation in a way, that, that commodification of interpreting. I've seen a lot of people talking about um, setting up platforms where you can just automatically book interpreters, where they can, this is all voluntary, right? And this is all mm -hmm. coming from within the industry because usually when people come up with these ideas, it's usually from, you know, some sort of agency thinks it's a good idea, but these are interpreters coming up with these ideas that they can set up platforms where they, everybody can log their their availability and then people can just come in and book you automatically and everything is basically just um, without any personal contact because they these, these interpreters think that's what people nowadays like. And oftentimes that's true. You know, that's how you find certain doctors. That's how you find, I don't know, your mechanic or, or your plumber. And uh, for certain approaches, that really works works well i'm not sure that works for interpreting i'm not sure i want it to work for my interpreting mm -hmm. um but those are the two most intriguing sort of approaches that i've seen mm -hmm. in in the recent i don't know developments in the industry and i i think that's an interesting point as i have seen the same two trends certainly from here um sadly i'm seeing more and more of people in their own industry going down the, I'm going to SEO everything, I'm going to automate everything, I'm going to have a very strict sales funnel. And it, it concerns me that the very tactics that we criticize certain certain parts of the industry for doing, I don't know, two years ago, are now becoming the, the very tactics that we are using, whether it's because yeah. people think that's what's working, uh, whether people think that, you know, it's, it's dog eat dog, so we have to, you know, start eating bigger dogs. Um, you and I know you've worked with a lot of solopreneurs and, and one-person businesses. How do you help people um, get away from this commodification? And you were talking that in the show notes, you were talking about direct and indirect marketing. Is there a, a link between the way that you market your services and the kind of attitude that you have in your head about the services that you're offering? Yeah, I think you've given me about three questions there, Jonathan. <laughs> let, let me have a bash at them. Um, the first thing, just for your listeners to clarify, indirect is when you send out communications to everyone and anyone. These are random posts on your social media. These are random letters to organizations, um, random articles and um, adverts in magazines no specific target, whereas direct marketing is when you have an individual's name. You contact them directly to their phone, directly by mail, directly by messages on social media. And for me, direct marketing is the route that you need to go. However, very few people do it because it's incredibly uncomfortable. Hmm. So hopefully that's answered one of the first yeah. questions for you there. Now, the second bit you were asking was really around how they position themselves. Um, the point Alex was making a minute ago about the automation and commodification, it's not easy in your industry from what I know about your industry. Some industries can do it better than others. And it will happen in, in every industry. I mean, all the professional services I work with, it's happening in. However, and Alex touched on this as well, you don't want to be one of the people that's going down that road because it is incredibly tough. It's incredibly competitive. And what I will see happening again and again is the big organizations, they will rule it and prices will be forced down and down and down. The route that you need to go 
is the other kind of 20% that are going their own way. And what I always encourage them to do is to move to what I call valued partner status rather than just another service provider. I don't know if you've heard that term before. Yes, some event managers would call it preferred supplier or um, it's kind of this move away from being the the fifth person on the list to the one that they're trusting with a lot more of the process than just deliver the event. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to answer your third question, how you achieve that, how you become that preferred supplier, that valued partner, it's around a couple of things. It's first, it, it's around targeting not just the delivery of your um, interpretation skills and, and other services you provide, is also touching on strategy and reporting. Now, when I mention strategy, delivery, reporting to those I work with, they all kind of hesitate and say, well, either it can't be done in my industry or I'm doing it already. People I've spoken to about this, they can all do it, and most of them are currently playing lip service to it. And how you deal with this and introduce it to a client. And Alex mentioned a minute ago about, you know, you have to be the expert and tell them. I see that as half right. You do need to be the expert. But the way that you tell them is by asking questions, asking quality questions around your interpretation skills in relation to their business needs. And when you start doing that, you help them to connect your services with the value that they are winning. And I know from conversations we've had, Jonathan, mm-hmm. you have helped people win huge mm-hmm. amounts of money that is worth something. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the thing is there has been, um, I think both Alex's and Judy will attest to this, there's been a historical hesitancy in interpreting, I think, to talk about what it is that interpreting achieves. We're good at talking about accuracy. We're good at talking about um, hours worked. We're good at talking about, some Some people are good at talking about where they've worked, but without giving the client away, but there hasn't been a lot of openness in interpreting to say, you know, in my last two jobs, I helped clients win deals worth roughly X million euros or X million dollars. Um, Judy, I would have expected that the American market would have actually been ahead of the game and been ready to to go to new clients and say, you know, you're a, a commercial client. I've helped companies in your sector or companies of your size to win contracts worth X million dollars. Is there a move towards doing that in the States or are people still hanging back and using the same, you know, I'm accurate. I've been to a university line that, that I think people have been using for about 50 years now. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think we're there yet. I've been trying to sort of push our colleagues to develop really a sense of what makes them different or what sets their services apart, right? And that's a big question. How can I sell something that so many people are good at and that really are hard to differentiate for the client? And one way, of course, to do it is to say exactly what you just said, that through my interpreting or language assistance services, this company has uh, fought off this major lawsuit or has won this new project in South America or whatever. But I just think the reason we're not doing it is because we 
we're just very shy, I think, as an industry uh, um, about highlighting our achievements. Um, a lot of it is we're just not very good at marketing. And sometimes people just don't think about that, that that would be interesting. But somebody like me who went to business school, I understand that every time you frame something in a monetary way, it's usually pretty compelling for clients, mm-hmm. right? You can say, yeah. hey, you know, we can, I can save you X amount of money if you do this, or I can help you win this. Mm-hmm. As, as ethnocentric as we are in this country, I think most business people fundamentally understand that the majority of business growth will be outside the United States mm-hmm. um, and outside of the English speaking market. So you're going to have to bring some linguists in there in the mix somewhere, right? So mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're. I think as an industry, we have a long way to go um, uh, in terms of highlighting um, those achievements and the highlighting our own importance in, in the global industry. I think so much of the problem is that, um, and I hate to say this, but this industry is very female-driven, and we don't have. We're just not very good at tooting our own horn sometimes we go back to the basics you know i'm a great interpreter i'm very accurate i'm like yeah but that's like saying hey i have a restaurant the food's good you're like yeah <laughs> right i mean that's kind of an minimum expectation right so there's some work to do <laughs> I, I was gonna say that when I was, it's like intercell used car by saying look it's got an engine in the front <laughs> I, mean, it, it really jonathan, doesn't I, I was gonna say jonathan yeah. can i jump in briefly yeah, yeah um, of course just a point there, a really good points, Judy. Uh, it was interesting to hear you talking about, you know, everyone who's listening to the show that are shy and they don't feel they're good at, you know, asking questions and selling. Well, I work with um, graphic designers and IT support people and SEO people. These people have got no communication skills. They are techies. <laughs> Could I just say that everyone listening to this show, if you think I'm not good, I'm a little bit shy, I don't know how to sell, could I just say you are miles ahead of all those techie people? <laughs> you are good. This, this is the thing is we all know, I mean, I've met some of those graphic design and techie people. We really are miles ahead. <laughs> but it, the, the, there is something about an interpreters. We are communication experts. And yet, and I say this knowing that I will get some emails back. Our external communications are, what's the polite word? Rubbish. <laughs> I think is the, <laughs> the only word for it. Alex, you do a lot of work with associations. Has there Have there been any moves with IEC and Falca Day to redress this lack of even good interpreting PR? We had a really good move recently with um, interpreters in war zones. Has anyone taken those lessons into promoting the services of uh, interpreters in the commercial and legal world? There have definitely been some um, strides in the PR kind of realm, but I think that's, again, an underlying discussion for the associations as to what they want to be. Do they want to be job platforms or do they want to be yeah. sort of a, a seal of quality? And I think I, th- I think there's kind of two camps and it's roughly 50-50 in, in terms of the membership. And one half wanted to be a job platform and the other half wanted to be just like... I'm here, I'm part of this association or organization, which stands for quality, which stands for a certain code of conduct. And as long as there that as long as there's that divide, you can't really hmm. um, satisfy everyone. I'm personally not thinking that these associations are job platforms because I'm thinking, hmm. you know, this is this is my business. I need to make sure that my own business is running. I can't just pay, hmm. I don't know, five hundred euros to an, to an association and 
expect them to do the work for me. That's not what I'm thinking. They can give me the tools by providing, I don't know, business workshops or some sort of CPD to improve my business, but then the rest is up to me. The thing is though, and I think that's sometimes very hard to communicate in, in our industry. And I don't know if it's, I really don't know what it is, but um, you and you were saying that the techie people um, don't really, or sometimes can't really sell themselves because they don't really have the communication skills that we have. But the thing is, the outside world looks at the techie people, the graphic designers, the website people, the IT folks, and they see cold, hard knowledge that they have, these IT people, that nobody else has. You know, if you show me a line of code, I might be able to decipher that there is a colon and a bracket in there somewhere, but that's pretty much it. (laughs) And if somebody looks at us, they're thinking, oh, yeah, you know what? I speak a little bit of French. Why would I be paying you X amount of money if, you know, Mm -hmm. I can do that too? Like, I'm pretty much almost as good as you are. So why would I be paying you this much? Whereas if you look at the code of a website, you're like, holy cow, please take this thing away from me and I'll pay you whatever you want. (laughs) So so I think it's really about us as an industry charging what we're worth. And as long as there's people who don't charge that, that's what makes it difficult for the rest of us who do who do want to charge them. So I think a lot of the issue is that some people just try or not they don't try they they simply sell themselves short. Yeah. Also absolutely. in terms of financial monetary value. Absolutely. Yeah, and I just wanted to add one point that here which is also related to the associations. As far as I can tell not all associations have actually understood that PR and and marketing is is a serious profession and not all associations have hire professionals to help them with that. Because of course, un- unless you have someone who is actually a PR professional or a, or a marketing professional who c- can do it as a volunteer in the association, you need a professional, an agency, some kind of support for doing that if, you- if you're serious about it. And not all associations do that, which I think is unfortunate. I mean, this is what I was going to say, though. There's a third way between being a job board and being a seal of quality. And that is, um, I have to hear wave my, my ITI flag, ITI's motto is promoting the highest standards in the profession. Not so much saying, you know, uh, we are selling our member services, but promoting the profession itself. Uh, right. promote, doing PR for the profession, saying this is what interpreters do. This is the difference we make. You and you mentioned about this difficulty with techies. And I like Alex, Alex's point that there is a, a kind of underlying understanding that they have knowledge that people need. But I've spoken to graphic de- designers who are quite concerned about the, ri- the rise of things like Fiverr and all of these Odesk and whatever they're called, these platforms where people can get what looks like a professional product for ridiculously low amounts of money. Is there ways that you work with these solopreneurs to enable them to almost make that competition irrelevant? Yeah, great question. Um, I mentioned previously, it's about asking those quality questions. And, you know, when someone says to you, oh, I speak French, I think I could do my own interpreting. You need to come up with two or three questions that categorically shows to them they cannot do their own interpreting. You know, asking them, what if someone was to put this word instead of that word? Do you know what the impact of that might be? You know, to ask them if someone was to get the context or, you know, if you've got a series of questions that holds up a mirror to them and helps them to see that actually their pigeon French is not going to cut a 30 million pound deal. <laughs> and I think this is, again, the uh, one of the, the fundamental issues is that I don't think we're used to asking questions. 
Um, I think yeah. traditionally the role of the interpreter has been to come with the answers, not necessarily to ask the questions. And I was I was going to turn this to Judy. One of the things that there have been discussions about, certainly some discussions that I've been involved in is, um, I remember talking to someone about, I'm realizing that I have to own the process, not just you know, the end result, the interpreting, the I turn up at nine o'clock on Monday, but take ownership over the process of how interpreting works for that organization. And what I got back from a couple of colleagues was, well, that's not interpreting, that's not our job. Um, are, do you deal with the same thing in the US where a lot of interpreters would say, that's not my job, I just turn up? Yeah. And, and if so, <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you overcome, if you like, those internal objections? Uh, very good question. You know, here in the U.S., conference interpreting really is still at its infancy compared to what it is in Europe, especially on the West Coast here where there are no major international organizations and no United Nations building, no permanent booths. So we have a there's a completely different level of expectation, I think, from everybody. Right. Even here in Las Vegas, which is uh, by all accounts and purposes, one of the biggest convention cities mm. in the world. But there is not one hotel, not one conference room in this entire city of more than 100,000 rooms that has a permanent interpreting booth, right? So I think the knowledge, I think the exposure that clients have to interpreting is very, very limited. So we have to do a lot of educational work. We have to explain to them that, no, we can't just sit in the back of your room at a folding table <laughs> and, and interpret into mobile equipment, which I actually get asked that all the time. So we've got a lot more work to do than you guys have over in Europe, for sure. But also, I think the fact that the industry is more in its infancy, so to say, here also makes it challenging for, for linguists to really really demand what they need in terms of working conditions. And we have the issue with, uh, like Alexander Gansmeyer was saying, about lower rates and people constantly undercutting each other because they love conference interpreting so much. And it's a huge thrill, right? So everybody <laughs> wants to do it because it's more exciting than conference and then, than community or legal. So I, I, see, I see that. But I think in general, yes, I would say that uh, I, I have noticed a tendency that some colleagues they do want the professional glory and they want the ex the acceptance of being a really um, well-paid professional, but they're not willing to do their part. I, I always tell them it comes both ways, right? You don't get clients yeah. to respect you just because yeah. that's what you want, right? You also uh, got to be involved in the process. You have to go above and beyond the minimum yeah. requirement. And for me, the minimum requirement is showing up at nine o'clock, <laughs> well-prepared and turning on the mic, but there's much more than that. And I think yeah. it's, yeah, it's not that they don't want to do it. I think they just haven't thought about it. They haven't really seen themselves as an important part of the conference or of the international strategy of the client. You know, I mean, for me, it's simple things like checking in with a client. Hey, you coming to Vegas? Here's my five, my five favorite restaurants for you that are within a mile of your hotel. Enjoy or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. But I love how it, what you said, Judy, and and I think it's really just not showing up and you know at nine o'clock and turning on the microphone. I think it's much more. But I don't think that a lot of interpreters have realized that I've had these conversations, especially with more experienced interpreters, who you know 
came up back in the golden days when interpreters were, you know, super rare. They had been flown out all around the globe, first class. Oh, nice. But, but you know, those people n never had to do these things. So whenever I'm at a large event, you know, I've organized 10 booths. I'm at a large event. I try to, or I do speak to the client on equal footing because if I'm there, if I'm providing 10 mm. languages so that thousands of people in the venue can understand what's going on, I'm just as crucial to the success of the event as the director, as the yep. lighting technician, as the catering guy. And yes. I think you need to kind of represent yourself in that reassuring way, not stand there like, oh, just the interpreters. We don't want to interfere. We don't want to bother you. Oh, please don't even look at us. Why are we here? <laughs> and, you know, I'm just kind of standing there. I like, I don't, I think it's a very fine line that you have to straddle though, because you don't want to be throwing yourself at the client. You know, I'm sure they're busy because it's a conference with thousands of people. So they don't want to talk to you necessarily. Maybe they don't have the time to talk to you, but try to be present. I, I try to be present. I try to talk to them on equal footing, just yeah. making sure that they see me, that they see what I'm doing, that I'm here and that I see what they're doing, that I get what they're doing mm -hmm. and exactly. that we're all kind of like, in the, on the, in the same struggle and we have to be visible i think this term yeah. of invisible invisible interpreter i've never really gotten the whole invisible interpreter uh, no. concept i don't think that's totally. a very good one for our industry for our profession i think i think we need to get rid of this whole invisible interpreter i don't know who the interpreters are. i haven't met any of them <laughs> i haven't met, met any of them any either but i could have just not seen them um, <laughs> you and could you give us a few words before we move on to a slightly different topic but can you give us a few words on on removing this word just ah. every, every one person business every solopreneur every consultant that i've met who's not yet earning you know a thousand pounds a day or whatever they all seem to be addicted to this word just you just read you, my mind i was gonna say yeah. the exact same thing yeah. <laughs> you, you, could you give well, us well, kind of your, sure. your battle worn tips of how to destroy that word for for us please well, yes please do let me share a story which i'm sure a few of you will have heard before one day picasso was in the park sketching drawing painting and a lady came over to him and said it's you picasso please would you draw a sketch of me so picasso said to the lady of course i shall and she sat down for him and with almost one stroke of his pen, he encaptured everything about that lady's character. And he handed the sketch over to the lady. It took him about 10 seconds. And he said to her, Madam, that will be 5,000 francs. And she said, it just took you 10 seconds. And he said, no, Madam, it has taken me all my life. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, I look at all these interpreters you're speaking about. You haven't just learned to speak a language or multiple languages overnight. This has taken you decades. It's taken you probably 10,000 hours of study. It has cost you money and, and God knows what else. You are worth it. You are worthy. Please charge more. And, and this is the thing is that we have, I, I promised the guys that I will try not to mention my book anymore, but um, the, the first chapter of my first book, um, I mentioned this thing about moving away from this we're a neutral conduit, we don't make a difference thing to actually partnering with clients. It is still to this day the most controversial thing that I've ever written because I think all of the interpreters in this room will realise the pressure on interpreters especially if you were trained 
more than about 10 years ago, this massive pressure to not, you know, almost like, it's like the day when I was interpreting in the control room of a nuclear power plant and the first words they told me were, don't touch anything. And I think interpreters have got this mentality of don't touch anything, don't make a difference. Some of the things that are that seem like brand new virgin territory for interpreting, you know, this whole value creation, talking about the difference that we make is, is quite new for the industry. But for the wider world of business, it's been fundamental for I don't know how long. Uh, just quickly, because I'm realizing that we need to start um, moving towards um, something that looks like a conclusion. Ewan, could you give us some example of um, monetary value for some interpreters, for instance, if they work in court or in hospitals, in court, for example, they don't really want to talk about we made X amount of money for so and so. For them, it's about was justice served. You know, they have a different set of um, business aims in mind. Um, if you see my meaning, could you give us some examples of uh, non-monetary ways of, of seeing value creation that you've wor- walked through with consultants, so that they've got kind of a whole battery of things that they can say to clients? Especially you get, I know you get non-profits that aren't particularly monetary driven, but there's a whole sector dedicated to them. So what are some non-monetary kind of value creation that businesses can talk about? There's a a two-prong approach here. The first one is about developing confidence in you, the interpreter. And the second one is about developing confidence in the client that you're speaking to. And both are equally important. And the way to do that is, I'm coming back to these questions again, when you sit down and you start asking questions, it opens the other person's eyes. But in the same breath, as you as they answer those questions and they tell you whether they're, they're in court or it's a business or a, a charity, when they're answering those questions and they're telling you the context of your interpretation work is in relation to helping um, a thousand employees to achieve something or whether it's about introducing a new product to the market. When you can see the value and when they can see the value, both of you will have much more confidence going forward. Now, as you go through a sales process with them, don't immediately go to the point where you say, okay, I'll drop you an invoice and then we'll get things underway. Instead of doing that, prepare a proposal, prepare a presentation and build that proposal or build that presentation around everything they have just told you by answering your questions. So in doing so, they are selling themselves on the things that they need and the things that will make an impact in their organization. That's a great way of seeing it. And again, it's not something that I think a lot of interpreters um, are used to Judy, have you been what sort of approaches have you been using to help clients appreciate your value, especially when you have a market very much like ours here in the UK where the price points for interpreting vary almost un- unbelievably widely and so to get to the upper end of those price points, there's something extra that has to be added. Um, what kind of approaches have you been using to like you was saying to help clients see the value in what you do? you know I work 
uh, as an interpreter pretty much every day, but the vast majority of my work is in court interpreting. Mm-hmm. I do conference interpreting as well, but as you know, the market here mm-hmm. for conference interpreting isn't, it just it simply isn't big enough to work only as a conference interpreter. And that, unfortunately, on the, on the conference interpreting side, we have the aforementioned problem that uh, many colleagues, um, all of whom I like and respect very deeply, <laughs> but have, have, have made some mistakes in terms of pricing. You know, so I have for certain conferences completely priced myself out of the market and I feel very happy with that strategy. Uh, I just, um, I wish that other, you know, colleagues would follow suit and, and insist a little bit more on professional rates. But on the, on the court interpreting side, there, there is a way to obviously set yourself apart and that's usually done via, uh, one of the ways is via certifications here. Here in the U.S., we have a certification for court interpreting for several languages, uh, my main language being being Spanish. And there's a federal certification, which what we sometimes call the major leagues of court interpreting. And there is there are only a few federally certified interpreters, usually per state, especially the smaller states. Nevada is not mm-hmm. small, but it's small in population. So there's there's about five of us. So that is the main distinguishing characteristic that I have that I'm that I'm technically on paper more qualified. I have a higher certification. So that's one. I mean, I think yeah. in court interpreting that really is a big differentiator. And and the other part is I actually go out of my way to make my clients happy. I show up at their boring networking events. I work mostly with lawyers, as you'd imagine, mm. uh, lots of lawyers. So I go to their events. I volunteer to give free um, education sessions on how to work with an interpreter. I wrote an article for their law magazine saying, here's five ways to save money while working with an interpreter. And I'm not never saying, don't don't pay them what they're worth. I'm just saying, you can reduce the time we spend on this if you do these and these things. So I, I, I think I've done a relatively good job at um, making sure that they know that I care about the success of their business as well, because, you know, my success and theirs are pretty tight together, right? Even as, um, as a court interpreter, of course, you're completely neutral on the outcome. Um, but I want to successfully establish communication and I want them to feel that that if they need uh, uh, over-the-phone interpreter as, as uh, subpar as that is for me as an interpreter, but if mm-hmm. they have their client on the line and he's in a jail somewhere far away <laughs> and they need to talk to him, I'm going to drop everything, even if I'm in the car and I'm going to take out my notes and I'm going to take consecutive notes and I'll interpret that as best I can, you know, <laughs> if I have to. Um, I, I solved the problem, right? It wasn't good for me as an interpreter, but I solved the problem for the client. I think so too. I completely agree. I feel like, Judy, you're just setting me up for these great things and I completely agree with everything you say all the time. So it's, no, it's really, no, it's really good because I do agree. Oftentimes, you know, you just kind of have to step back as an interpreter and say, okay, this is less than ideal. This is not exactly how it's supposed to go in interpreting, but this is what the situation requires. This is what the client requires at the moment. And if you're helping them out in a bind, they're going to remember that and they're going to be more loyal because you help them out in a subpar situation. If you're pulling up uh, on the side of the road, if you're getting out your notes, if you're doing that telephone interpreting or whatever it may be, they're going to remember that and they're going to come back to you next time because you've helped them out. And I think that's something that's a, that's a big point of mine that we all have to realize that in our, in our very innate self-concept as interpreters, we're not just people with languages, we're business people on equal footing with the other people, with yeah. the other business people. And 
Yep. Yeah, just behave in that way, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think they remember you. I totally agree that that actually just happened to me last week. I was, my dad was visiting from Europe for a month and I tried to spend as much time with him as possible. And last week we're on the way to lunch, uh, very casually dressed. And this client calls and says, oh my God, I, I'm supposed to have an interpreter for this interview for, for court. And if I don't do it today, then the judge is going to bite my head off because it's completely my fault. I have everything done except for the interpreter. Can you come in right now? I said, I said, well, right now I'm not dressed professionally. And he said, I don't care. I said, I'm actually on my way to lunch with my dad. He's like, bring your dad. I don't care. So, <laughs> so we went over there and he said, you just saved my life. This judge was absolutely going to bite my head off if I didn't have this done by tomorrow. And I said, hey, I like saving your life. That's uh, that's great. You know, everybody's happy. Yeah. I saved your life. I can go to lunch later. <laughs> I did. <laughs> that was exactly. it. Exactly. Get some pocket change too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the thing, I mean, I, I remember in early December, I got a strange email while I was at the, in the middle of a trade show from an organization I'd never heard of saying, can you come and interpret in Paris on Friday? Wow. And I was thinking, is this one of these um, really weird uh, kind of crying because there are so many scams going through oh, and, yeah. and I tried to put them off and I was like you know I'm at a trade show and uh, they wanted me to call I'm like I'm really sorry I'm at a trade show can't call you just now I'm quite happy to recommend colleagues in France and literally Thursday morning so it was the Wednesday Thursday morning I get home I'm minding my own business I think I just we just um, not long finished breakfast or something and I get this call from a French number on my phone and I mean at nine o'clock in the morning sometimes trying to find good business French is not easy and they were kind of super desperate and so they flew me on Friday very early Friday morning out to France uh, into Paris and then I got a train somewhere I'm not allowed to say <laughs> and by, by like seven o'clock at night I was interpreting at a business meeting worth an enormous amount of money um, and then I ended up interpreting until about 11 p.m. to the point where I couldn't eat properly because I was so fatigued my stomach was in knots and I felt horrible because everyone who's done business interpreting knows that the meal after the meeting is as important as the meeting itself. Right. And the, the real work happens when they're munching on their whatever food. It doesn't happen in the negotiating room, which is like a tip I want to give people ever do negotiation. Real, the real business happens when you're eating. And mm -hmm. um, literally just as dessert got there, I it was like a seven course, fabulous French meal. And I got by course three, I felt like I was about to see course one again. Um, and it just, but, but it's one of these things you do that because, you know, it was a recommendation from a colleague of a colleague and you do that because you don't leave people in a bind if you can possibly manage it. Exactly. Um, and it, I don't usually do urgent interpreting because your prep time just goes nowhere. And if one of the things I've got, a currently an email, six week email course available for people looking to buy interpreting more intelligently. And one of the things that I say is, for goodness sake, give interpreters time to prep. We're good, but we're not that good that we can come in without prep. <laughs> you know, it's gonna we're really good, but yeah, give us prep and you'll get a better result. But that job just those things happen. Mm -hmm. And we're we're moving towards the end now, but one of the useful tools which I'm looking to pick up on myself um is Ewan has a course which everyone who I've talked to that's been on the course has said what a great course it is. Can you talk us through, Ewan, what your course is about uh, we'll put a link to it in the, the show notes what your course is about who it's for and what kind of things people will learn from the course yeah sure jonathan um the the first thing who it's for 
are professional service providers, um, not just interpreters. It's uh, those ITs and techies and SEOs, also HR people. That's who it's for. What it does, uh, very simply, it helps you to move to a position where you can double your prices. And what that allows you to do is start scaling your business or reducing your hours, which most people seem to like. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the course came about. <laughs> the course came about a few years back. Um, I noticed that the, the clients I'm working with, they were all the same. They were small businesses or they were sole traders, certainly less than five people. And they were all in the same difficult problem. They were working too long hours. They were getting underpaid. And I thought, I need a solution for them. Initially, that solution was two years until one of them said to me, Ewan, I'm sure you could teach this in two months. So the course is now two months. And it's incredible because the shape of most courses nowadays is uh, three webinars and a pamphlet. I don't know if people have noticed this trend that someone calls it a course. <laughs> if, they've re- if they've recorded three 15-minute videos on a beach somewhere and they've got a one-page <laughs> PDF. Um, I've looked at the contents of Ewan's course and there's a lot of stuff there. There's a lot of uh, one-to-one work there at different price points. As well. Well, well, we'll put it in the show notes and people can have a look. I have a feeling you're going to get a lot of sign-ups because as soon as you said double your fees, my eyes just got bigger. <laughs> um, and, and also I've reduced from... 1st of December last year, I went down to four-day work week almost every week. I've broken it once this year so far. That's because I didn't have a choice because of when things landed. And oddly, and I cannot yet explain this, since I've gone to a four-day working week, my monthly revenue has gone up. That's well fantastic. And I checked this. And so what I was doing is I was comparing um, the months this year against average months and against the maximum month. And every month is above average. And one month, uh, there was a 30-day period where where I earned more in 30 days than I had ever earned in any 30-day period in my entire career. Wow. Um, And that is going going to afford... It wasn't an exact month, so it didn't look great on my charts and stuff. But I saw this, and I looked at the the last time that I earned, I think it was about 10% less, well, it was about 20% less than that because of exchange rates. And I counted up roughly how many hours I was working, and I realized the last time I got close to that figure, I worked three consecutive weeks of 60 weeks, 10 hours most days. This time, I was doing four-day weeks, seven and a, six to seven and a half hours a day, with the exception of that French job. Um And that made me realize that actually the conventional, I mean, I've seen so many translators and interpreters say things like, you have to work when the work comes in, or, you know, I don't have time to go to conferences because what if a job comes in? I think that entire attitude, we could do an entire podcast series on attitudes, but this attitude of I'm a slave to when the work comes in, I would like to free us from that because as as Ewan's been talking about, there are things that we can do that we can even out this feast and famine. There are things that we can do that we're adding value to clients all through the process. There are ways that we can um, kind of work towards having more ideal clients. Those things are doable. And I think most of it 
certainly from my point of view, the biggest change, biggest shift that I've seen in the past 18 months is my attitude to my own work. Slap a consultant title in front of my name and suddenly I see myself differently and I market myself differently. So it's a, it's a lesson and it's moving into, we're going to look to wrap up here so that Alex Drexel doesn't have too much editing to do to get it down to size. Um, and we're going to ask everyone, and I'm going to start with Alexander Drexel first. <laughs> Just because... Um, He's actually done an incredible amount of stuff on uh, using tablets and using tech, and you've done an incredible amount on making interpreting accessible to the outside world and talking to outside experts. So moving from the person who thinks he's going to have least to say all the way through to I think we'll finish off with, uh, with uh, Judy and then Ewan, if there was one thing that you were to say to an interpreter that they have to do today, uh, what would it be? Start, start with Alex. <laughs> Can I just be the contrarian and say, please do not start a blog. Please do not start a podcast. Just, just for marketing. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> there you go. That's a, that's a big note today. Okay, Alex Gansmeyer, if you were to tell an interpreter to do something right now, what would it be? Uh, listen to our podcast. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> <laughs> no. I know. So I just had to plug ourselves. No, I think you just need to move away from... Um, I'm just a little itty-bitty interpreter providing an itty-bitty service for this huge conference. You're a valuable part, and you need to be presenting yourself as an equal to your business partners, because that's what you are, your partners. So I think that's just a shift in, in mindset. Okay, and Judy, what would you say that interpreters have to start doing right now? Alexander Jolie uh, mentioned exactly it. Ah, uh, Judy! <laughs> you're, killing, you're killing me! Let me expand on it and totally agree that you have to see yourself as an entrepreneur, which is what I've been saying for a long time. And I think it's, it's kind of taking hold in our profession. And maybe the second thing is to learn to love technology or to at least work with it and live with it and understand that technology is going to influence our profession, whether you like it or not, whether you're against it or for it, you have to understand that it's coming. And instead of sticking your head in the sand and saying, I don't want it, I don't get it, you're going to become obsolete. I think you need to find a way to work with technology. And not all technology is good. And you and we've all talked a lot about remote interpreting and simul remote. And there's a lot of new things coming up. But you need to learn to love technology, to learn to live with it. And that's what I tell my students, too. I mean, I, I teach interpreting and I give students simple time after to do for creating a video on speech pool so others can practice interpreting with your video. And you, you'd be surprised the amount of opposition I get to. It's like I'm going to stand on their head, but I'm just asking them to make a video. <laughs> but there's all these opposition. There's incredible opposition to technology, which is pretty dumbfounding to me. Um, you know, making a video seems like a pretty basic thing. And, and, and interpreters work with technology all the time. So deal yeah, with it. Suck it up. There's no, cr no crying in interpreting. <laughs> no crying in interpreting. There's no crying in interpreting. Uh, you... you <laughs> By Sorry, the way, Judy, do you have anything to uh, do? You have anything to plug as well? Maybe a new book or or anything <laughs> that we should know about? No, you know, I I really I really don't. I yeah, the your um your podcast is amazing. I think there are a lot of great blogs out there. Maybe the market is a bit saturated at this point. Yeah, um, you know, I think uh, there's still too many blogs these days than there were maybe 
15 years ago or even 10 years ago. So I don't have anything to plug except for, oh, maybe I'm teaching a course through the ITI. There's an ITI course, Advancing Your Freelance Career, and I'm one of the tutors Mm -hmm. in that class, which I think has been a great effort that ITI has made. It is a few webinars and a pamphlet, but it's actually more than a few (laughs) webinars and a pamphlet. (laughs) (laughs) You you have no idea how much It's a good course. Check it out. You have no idea how much our professional development officer is about to hit me when I get to the next board meeting. Ewan, <laughs> let's move us back to some sanity. If, if, <laughs> you were, if you were to say to an interpreter who wants to, say, double their fees by the end of this year, what would be the one thing that you would say to them you have to do right now? Yeah, well, could I just tell everyone that's listening, you are stronger than you seem, braver than you believe, and smarter than you think raise your prices tomorrow by at least 5 to 10%. And I'll guarantee you, no one will grudge it. They will all pay it. On, on the very, very few exceptions where people have said, I'm not paying that, it is always the one client that they wanted to fire anyway. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I'm going to end with, as someone who in the past 18 months has seen his agency, just my agency prices, have gone up by a percentage figure that I'm not going to say on the podcast, but they've gone up considerably in the past uh, 18 months since I graduated. I would say to every interpreter, the one thing that you must do tomorrow is commit that you will spend 50% of your in-person networking time away from other interpreters. Uh, the reason why I say that is I now I now go to client events as a matter of course. I love translation and interpreting conferences. Chababan, who runs the BP series of conferences, is an absolute genius. The man deserves a knighthood. Um, there are some wonderful conferences out there. ITI do great conferences. Lots of people do great conferences. But no one ever increased their fees massively by getting a new client from a uh, by getting another translator or interpreter as a client um, referrals are great if we really want to grow the industry if we really want to grow our fees if we really want to get out of feast or famine we have to as i'm going to say in vienna in april get off our butts so the one thing that I would say to interpreters mm-hmm. is look at your conference budget, look at your CPD budget, and dedicate half of that budget to events where you would imagine there will not be another interpreter there. Um, it's silly. I went to an event. I've been. I go to event management trade shows every year. The first time I went to one, someone said the second thing that someone said to me was, "That's odd. We don't see any of. We've never seen any of your type here before. Yet we hire you all the time." And to me, that was the most insightful mm. but saddest thing that I could hear at an event with 1,400 potential interpreting buyers every single day. Wow. And so I think the, the future belongs to the interpreters who are brave enough to get off of our bottoms and spend 50% of your time outside the industry. It's going to make a big difference. It's going to change the industry. We're not going to raise our rates doing what we're currently doing. We need to do something new. So I think with that, I think it's goodbye from me and I'll let everyone say goodbye themselves. So uh, Alexis, 
to everyone first. Do you want to say goodbye? <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> and Ewan and Judy, do you want to say a semi-coordinated goodbye? <laughs> goodbye. Bye-bye. This was Bye. lovely. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. It was great to have you. It was great. It went a lot better than I thought it would. The future belongs to the interpreters who are brave enough to get off of their bottoms. And as they say in the film business, that's a wrap. Thank you.